The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. continue walking through our series in the book of Hebrews. Last week, we started this series with a quick overview that showed us that the the main theme of the entire book of Hebrews is the supremacy of Jesus. Jesus is elevated above the angels. He is a better Moses who brings us into a better promised land. He is a superior high priest who offers a better once and for all sacrifice for sin so that we, all, you and me, can be reconciled to God permanently. After a quick overview of the book, we focused our attention last week on the first three verses, the introduction to the letter of Hebrews, where the writer plants the central ideas that he will develop throughout the letter. The supremacy of Jesus' revelation, his reign, and his redemption— the three R's of our salvation. We continue in the letter this week by looking at the first way that Jesus is lifted up as supreme, how Jesus is supreme to the angels. And we just sung about that in the last hymn, which I thought you did an excellent job singing. This week, I'll start with chapter one, and next week, Reverend Walker will finish the comparison by taking us through chapter 2. This week's passage clarifies that Jesus' supremacy to angels is inherent. It's redemptive, it's a royal supremacy, and it's recognized by all, even the angels. So to get our bearings, let us reread the introduction starting at verse 1. I'm going to read sections of the chapter and then pause to, to comment on and explain what I just read. You can please, if you will, follow along in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we have ones in the pew, and in our Bibles, it's on page 1001. Starting at verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. First, there is an inherent supremacy of the Son when compared to the angels, and the writer has already established this, as we saw last week in verses 1 through 3, that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. Angels as messengers reveal God's Word, they speak for God, but the Son 
speaks as God. And this was supported in verse 3 that I just read. He is the radiance of the glory of God. As Son, Jesus radiates God's glory. He is the source of God's glory. He doesn't merely reflect it like you and I do as human beings made in God's image. We have moon-like glory, but Jesus has sun-like glory, A-S-U-N. Angels as messengers speak for God, but Jesus speaks as God. Now to add something to what I said last week, let me say this, that both humans and angels reflect God's glory just in different ways and not as cute little childlike angels, which we think of when we think of cherub. If you look at the cherubs in the scriptures, we first see them in, in, in Genesis, where after the fall, the cherub is a warrior with a sword who, who guards entrance back into Eden. But what we see here is that angels reflect God's glory in a different way. And sort of like two planets, right? We have Mars red and Earth blue that reflect the sun's glory. Angels and humans orbit around the sun reflecting his glory. So Jesus, furthermore, is inherently supreme because he shares God's nature as creator and sustainer of the universe. Again, we saw this last week in verse 2. All things were created through Jesus He is creator, not creation. And verse 3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He providentially sustains every part of the universe, including every fiber of your being. So Jesus is inherently superior to the angels because he's fully divine, the uncreated creator and sustainer of the universe who fully reveals God because he is God. Angels, by comparison, are not divine. They are created heavenly beings. Secondly, there is a redemptive supremacy of the Son in comparison to the angels. Pick up, if you will, in the second half of verse 3, where we left off last week. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Having become superior indicates that there is a a very specific type of superiority to the angels that Jesus did not always have, but he eventually came to have after he made purification for sin. How so? Well, Jesus' redemptive supremacy is won through his priestly mission. To make purification for sin, the Son had to first descend and become inferior to the angels, as we'll read about in Hebrews 2.9. But in the process, the Son is granted a new kind of supremacy to the angels, a redemptive supremacy. The Son became inferior to the angels by descending from heaven to earth, taking on human weakness, vulnerability, and misery. He took on the frailty of humanity. He humbled himself, limited himself. Down and down he went. He suffered the physical pains of hunger and exhaustion. He suffered the miseries of temptation, yet remained without sin. He suffered the horrors of betrayal, mockery, and torture. Down and down he went until he reached utter bottom death on the cross 
where he absorbed the wrath of God. And as man, he served as an innocent substitute for sinful man. And he bore God's punishment for sin once and for all and offered that perfect sacrifice for sin, thus making purification for his people's sins. That was his mission, and it was accomplished on the cross, but it cost him everything. It cost him his wealth, his heavenly wealth, his rights, his comfort, even his very life. But then after he suffered, died, and made purification for sins, he begins his ascent. Up and up he went, first by rising from the dead, then by vindicating himself as the risen one to all of his followers, then by ascending to heaven where he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he, in verse 3 it says, having become superior to the angels. How much superior? Verse 4 clarifies. As much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What does this mean? Nearly all the angels go unnamed, except for Michael and Gabriel. But the Son is named. Jesus in the Greek. Yeshua in the Hebrew, which means God saves. We don't save ourselves. God saves us. See, the angels, they take glory in being God's servants, God's messengers to mankind. But Jesus glories in being God's Son. God's Redeemer of mankind. And His name is God's Son, Savior. But He's also Lord. See, angels remain and only ever have been messengers and ministers to mankind. But when the Son comes and His name is made superior because He's the Savior of mankind, He is named Lord of all. The God who saves. The Lord Jesus. How does this apply? Recognize the total supremacy of Jesus and worship Him all the more. Worship Jesus not just because He's inherently supreme, though He is, but more than that, worship Him because He was willing to give up His inherent supremacy, His power and His glory, and become weak, frail, and limited for you, so that you could be reconciled to God. He was isolated, cast out, so that you no longer need to live in isolation. He made purification for your sins so that you might be reconciled and restored to God and to each other and even to creation itself. It's hard to imagine how one full of inherent glory could increase his glory even more, but Jesus finds a way and he does it. He gains even greater honor over the angels precisely because he voluntarily became inferior to the angels for a time to save you and me, to purify sinners and free us from all shame and guilt. How infinite his love. How glorious and amazing and wonderful. And and let that recognition of his total supremacy move you into an unshakable security, the kind that allows you to follow Him and like Him, voluntarily give up your status and your rights and your position and your wealth and everything, even if required, your life 
And you and I can only do that if we are convinced deep down in our soul, if we embrace the Lord who already did that for us. See, He who is rich became poor so we could become rich. He who is worshipped became despised so that we can be respected and cherished in Christ. And when that gets down into your heart, it gives you the, such security that you can follow Him and give it all up. His supremacy is inherent. It's redemptive. Third, it's royal compared to the angels. This is where we'll spend the majority of our time, for the writer gives us a lot, and I mean a lot, of supporting evidence from the Old Testament to make his point. And it's in verses 5 through 14, and I'm going to read it to you. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And your Lord laid the found- you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same. And your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not they angels? ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Now, to explain the royal supremacy of Jesus, first I want to give you a picture that will help you navigate and put together all the puzzle pieces. Sort of, you know, when we do a puzzle as a family, I always cheat. I get the picture, and I look at the picture, and that's what I follow to put together. It motivates me. It keeps me motivated. My, my wife loves doing puzzles. I love my wife. So, so I want to give you a picture that uh, keep you motivated to do the hard work of putting the pieces of the puzzle together. The writer bids his Jewish readers, who are already familiar with the whole Old Testament, to listen again to their history, and he offers them a picture. In verses 5 through 14, the writer quotes seven times from the Old Testament. Six are from Old Testament songs. One Moses' song, and five psalms. One quote is from a historical event where God made a very important promise to King David, and that event is absolutely central to establishing the royal supremacy of Jesus. And all the songs are used to celebrate and clarify the significance of that historical event, God's irrevocable promise to King David. So the writer handpicks these songs for special attention. They're, they're golden oldies. And here's the picture. In the 80s and 90s, we would create mixtapes on these things called cassettes. Okay, kids, if you don't know what I mean, ask your parents. 
okay? Or think Guardians of the Galaxy. A cassette mixtape was what Peter Quill's mom made him. It was the only connection he had to her. See, back then, in the 80s and 90s, if you really loved someone, you made a mixtape for them. It was the way to share special memories and to really connect. This is kind of like an audio-only version of Instagram. Only we had to put way more time and thought into it, so it was much cooler and more significant. <laughs> now, each song was chosen because it had significant meaning, and not all songs necessarily needed to be from the same musician. Some songs might be pump-it-up songs or love songs or sad songs, but what's going on here? In the same way, the Hebrew writer quotes from a collection of songs... And we may not be as familiar with these Old Testament tunes, but the Hebrews knew them well. And it only took a verse or two to call to mind the whole song. Kind of like me singing, Celebrate good times. Come on. There's a party going on, right? Okay. A single verse could bring to mind the whole song. And the writer uses a single verse, sometimes several verses, to say, go back, sing that song, think about it, play God's song over and over again, learn how its messages are more profound and more beautiful than you ever realized. Its beauty and its truth, its its promises transcend time and are fulfilled in time. And all these songs, whether Moses's or the Psalms, their meaning is can only properly resolve when you understand how they elevate Jesus as the king who is royally supreme. Now, some songs echo the promise of God to reign over all of creation through mankind, not angel kind. And what kind of king this man would be, that he would be divine and righteous and bring full joy. Other songs echo the purpose of the angels, which exist to worship and serve the royal son for the sake of those who will inherit salvation, as we read in verse 14 of chapter 1. But each song celebrates or develops an understanding of the royal supremacy of Jesus. That's the picture. And before I move on from the picture, I want to give you an application. Listen to the (laughs) mixtape that the writer of Hebrews is putting together here. Listen carefully to the song. These are golden oldies and they share significant events, key promises, memories of who God is, how He has worked in human history and where it all points. And as you listen, may it motivate you to go back and reflect more and ultimately appreciate more all of the Old Testament. Because as you do, as you read and study the Old Testament you will discover Jesus hidden throughout. It, throughout, The Messiah is promised and prefigured throughout the whole Old Testament. And so when the Son arrives in the flesh, when Jesus shows up on the world stage, you know better what Jesus came to accomplish, what Jesus means by what He says, and what promises He came to fulfill. So that's the picture. Now let's fit the pieces together verse by verse. And this is going to take some work. You're going to be tempted to zone out. Please don't. The royal supremacy of Jesus is manifested in God's promise to David. In other words, God's big plan was to rule universally and eternally through mankind, not angels. 
The promise of kingship was given to mankind, not angel kind. This point is explicitly made at the beginning and the end of this section, verse 5 through 13. In verse 5, to which of the angels did God ever say? In verse 16, he repeats that. These two songs that are quoted in verse 5 and 13 are Psalm 2, where he says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And both of them are messianic psalms. And they reflect the one event that is quoted in these passages that is not a song. And it's quoted in the second half of of verse 5. It's only a small verse, but like the songs, it's about much more, where God says in 2 Samuel 1.14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be my son. See, both Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, the first and the last, celebrate this covenant promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, and they were understood, these songs were understood even in Old Testament times to promise, to be a promise of a coming and future Messiah who would accomplish things that no mere human could Now, I want us to understand the Psalms first in their original context and then see how the writer of Hebrews is using them to support his point in this new context in his letter. So Psalm 2 is a royal psalm. When the Old Testament Jews would sing Psalm 2, they remind themselves of how God made David and his descendants to be kings in order to fulfill the purpose for which Abraham was called to be a blessing to all nations. And the godly Israelite realizes that his hope of God's blessing is irrevocably tied to the house of David. And so he rejoices in God's promise to keep the Davidic king and the Davidic line going. And and the Psalm 2 is written, it's first sung when Gentile kingdoms that were part of David's empire sought to throw off David's rule. So this Psalm recalls that the promise made to David is for the good of the Gentiles and notes that Gentiles will find lasting joy only as they subject themselves to this king. Because the promise is the house of David will rule over the whole world. And this psalm looks to a future when that Messiah will reign over all, having even the ends of the earth as his possession. Now the writer of Hebrews, right, let's bring it into this letter, is telling the readers, go back, look at Psalm 2 and realize the scope of of the Davidic king's rule. It's universal and eternal. And therefore, it calls for a ruler that is more than mere man. And he's arrived, and his name is Jesus, son of David. He is the God-man, king of all. And the application he pulls out of Psalm 2 is be wise and kiss the son. Serve him with fear. Take refuge in him. Now, there's a phrase, repeat it, to which of the angels did God say? To which of the angels did God say? And then it says, you know, that he calls Jesus son. Now, at Westminster, we never want to gloss over difficulties in the text or ignore objections. And more astute students of the Bible know that God called heavenly beings, such as angels, sons of God throughout the Old Testament. But the point of quoting Psalm 2 is not to imply God never called angels sons of God in the sense that they're created by God, meant to reflect His glory. But the point of of the Hebrew writer is to clarify God did not give the promise to rule 
universally and eternally through an angel, but through a man. Now, while begotten, well, let me, let me uh, back up here. The second half of the verse is, you are my son, today I've begotten you. The kings of old were regularly referred to as sons of God. And the original context of Psalm 2 refers not to the creation of any person, neither the creation of David as the first king, nor of Jesus as the eternal king, but to the establishment of David, to the establishment of Jesus, to the establishment of that person as God's appointed king. And so while begotten does not refer to the creation of Jesus, because he's eternally uncreated, it may refer to his incarnation, when the eternally divine Son is born in human flesh and comes down on earth to rule his people. So that's the first song. The last song quoted from the Old Testament is from the opening words of Psalm 110. In verse 13 of Hebrews 1, it says, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This psalm is one of the most cited Old Testament texts in the New Testament. It has allusions everywhere in the Gospels, in Acts, in Paul's epistles, here in Hebrews, in Peter's letters. When God's Old Testament people would sing this song, Psalm 110, they would celebrate God's promises to David and yearn for that day in which Gentiles would receive the light and submit to the one true King, the Messiah. But like Psalm 2, it goes beyond the achievements of any mere human heir of David. And so as Christians who understand who this heir is, we sing this psalm as a celebration that Jesus established the Davidic king the kingdom as an eternal dynasty by his resurrection so he could rule forever, unlike David's other sons who must die. And that we as believers who are part of the body of Christ are extending the kingdom of Jesus, subduing all nations and tribes and languages, not through war, but through the hope of the gospel, through good news. The writer of Hebrews is telling his readers to revisit Psalm 10 and learn how its promises can only be realized in Jesus, that he, he reigns until the last enemy is made a footstool at his feet, which is death, and until he restores all of creation to its original glory, that shalom, that, that peace, that, that sense of things are running the way they should the way they were made to run. So Psalm 2 clarifies the arrival of the king. Psalm 10 clarifies the ultimate victory of the king. There are two more songs that describe this king. Psalm 45 is quoted in Hebrews verse, chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. And this describes the type of king. He says, But of the sons, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Because you loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Keep in mind, David's throne was to be distinguished from other thrones because a king would follow the Lord wholeheartedly. It would be distinguished by ruling uprightly with righteousness, hating wickedness. It would be distinguished by God's greatest of blessings, bringing gladness beyond any other king. And the writer of Hebrews is bidding his readers to revisit Psalm 45 and see how, how it describes Jesus' reign to a T as the son of David. See, Jesus rules uprightly. His is a scepter 
of righteousness. He hates wickedness. And he was anointed with the oil of gladness above all of his companions because he, he wipes away every tear. He overcomes every sorrow. He defeats death itself. He was no mere son of David that was a man, but he's the God-man. So the phrase, your throne, O God, took on a fuller definition and became a profound reality as the divine son, Jesus, is rightly called God. So the promise of God to rule universally and eternally through a man, not an angel, is fulfilled in the son of David named Jesus. And he fulfills all these promises Now, the application of these songs about God's promised son of David in Psalm 2, in Psalm 110, and in the middle at Psalm 45, is one more song, Psalm 102, where the worship ascribed to God is given to the son. And there in verses 10 through 12 of Hebrews 1, it says, You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They perish, but you remain They wear out like a garment, like a robe, you roll them up, like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same and your years have no end. See, in its full original context, Psalm 102, is it's not a messianic psalm. It had no relationship with the covenant of David. Rather, it's the prayer of one who who suffering affliction unto death, and he entrusts himself to God, who alone has the power to set free those doomed to die. And the last verse of the psalm ascribed praise to God as the eternal, unchanging creator. And though creation wears out and passes away, God remains the same. His years have no end. And so the writer of Hebrews is bidding his readers to make the logical conclusion. All the worship that rightly belongs to Yahweh, to God, should be ascribed to Jesus. All the characteristics that belong to God belong to Jesus. This song the writer of Hebrews is using to drive home the supremacy of Jesus to the angels. Only the Son is both all-powerful and perfectly faithful. Angels are neither. The Son is creator of heavens and earth. The angels are not. The Son is eternal and unchanging. And unlike the rest of the creation, which will wear out like a garment, the Son has the ability to take the earth and the heavens that will wear out like a garment, and the Son will, like a robe, he'll roll them up, this old creation, and the Son will renew and change the earth and the heavens like a garment will be changed. The promise of God to rule universally and eternally came through a man. But no mere man, the God-man, who is worshipped. The grand stage of God's redemptive plan happens on a human stage, not an angelic stage. The hero is a God-man, and his throne is set here on planet Earth. So Jesus' supremacy to angels is inherent because he is divinely God. It's redemptive in his mission as Savior to mankind, and it's royal because it manifests God's promise to rule universally and eternally came through man, not angels. And then fourth, Jesus' supremacy to angels is recognized universally by the angels. Look at verse 6 and 7. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Firstborn is used here not, not to speak of Jesus as created. The writer has already established he's the uncreated creator. Firstborn is a poetic device 
that refers to Jesus' status as the heir of all things. See, see, the firstborn is the kingly heir of the throne. And Jesus is that kingly heir. And so in verse 6, he says, let all God's angels worship this kingly heir. And it comes from the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. And in the original context, Moses is speaking to the angels about Yahweh, but the writer of Hebrews takes that and says that same worship that angels give to Yahweh, they give to Jesus. And godly angels rejoice in worshiping Him. It's the rebellious fallen ones that have a problem worshiping Him. But they worship Him still, not in submissive love, but in horrified fear as they did whenever Jesus crossed their path as He was walking around Galilee. And these fallen angels cried out, Jesus, Son of the Most High, we beg You, do not torment us. See, Jesus' supremacy is recognized universally by the angels. They know their station in relation to Jesus. Look at verse 7. Of the angels, God says, He makes His angels winds and His ministers a a flame of fire. This is from Psalm 104, verse 4. Now, the word angel means messenger. The word minister means servant. So, angels serve as God's messengers and servants but also as God's escorts. Angels appear as flames of fire flying on the wings of the wind. As chariots of fire, God sir, uh, angels served as God's escort. And we see that in, in, in visions in Ezekiel and elsewhere. So the supremacy of the Son to angels is inherent, redemptive, royal, and recognized universally by all the angels. Now, One closing application. How does this all apply? The writer of Hebrews tells us at the beginning of chapter 2. He says in verses 1 through 4, I'm just going to read it. Chris is going to get into this more next week. But he says, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. And while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. See, the writer says the main application of all that I said in chapter 1 is pay attention. And don't just pay attention, pay much closer attention. Don't be talked out of this hope by the persecution you're going through, by the confusion of your Jewish brothers and sisters who've rejected the, the Jesus as Messiah. Don't be talked out of it by bad experiences that cause you to doubt. Jesus is as real as it gets. Go back and reread and reflect and realize the supremacy of Jesus lest you drift away from the only hope that will carry you through, the only hope that lasts, the only hope that the Old Testament points to, the only hope that is certain and true. And he gives two reasons to pay attention The first is a warning, and the second is evidence. First, he gives a stern warning, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just 
retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect this great salvation? That's a good question. Drifting away from this is drifting away from life itself, from love, from the only thing that matters. You are throwing God's greatest gift back in His face. And if you do that, not only will you lose everything, but God will be just to make retribution against you that you can't escape. The second reason for paying attention is he says, look at all the trustworthy evidence. It was declared by the Lord, attested by those who heard. It was witnessed to by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts. And so what he's saying, how does this apply? Trust the evidence of what you have seen and heard, what you know about Jesus' supremacy. The evidence is in. Trust the evidence over your culture's philosophy. Trust the evidence over your bad experience with religion. Trust the evidence over the persecution you're going through. Trust the evidence over your family members' opinions or bad opinions of you. Trust the evidence over your bad mood and your insecurities and your shame of not quite feeling that Jesus was enough. Trust the evidence. Jesus is enough. He's come. He's Redeemer. And He is a supreme Redeemer. And He saves you in every way that you need to be saved. And He fulfills the promise that was given by God, that He is going to rule all things and make all things new eternally and universally. And that promise came through man, not to the angels. And it's fulfilled in Christ. Amen. Let us pray. God, forgive us for not paying attention. Thank You for giving us the writer of Hebrews who helps us to pay attention. And God, let these words penetrate our hearts and our minds that we might see the supremacy of Jesus. That He's inherently supreme. That He's redemptively supreme. That He is the supreme King. And that He is recognized by all, both in this material world and in the spiritual world. And let that lead us to greater worship of Him, but also greater confidence, greater security that this King came for us to make us part of His kingdom so that we could participate in the joy of Him making all things new. And that joy is far above any peers. Jesus has no peers. And yet we get to experience the same joy by being united to Him. I pray for anyone here that this is the first time they're hearing that. this. God, pursue them. Don't let them rest until they come to grips with this Jesus and bow before Him in loving submission. In Jesus' name, amen.